You're listening to the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. Hey, Gerson, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. It's it's a pleasure again to uh, chat with you. Um, for those folks listening, uh, Gerson has just been really instrumental in kind of behind the scenes work with me in Guatemala, providing really significant mining expertise and was actually involved in a Zoom conference when I met with the mayor down in Guatemala. So um, I really appreciate Gerson and he's got a great personal story that we're going to talk about. And Gerson, as you'll find out, is also into mining. And Gerson lives in Maryland where I lived for about 15 years. So we have that in common, but uh, he's just a super, super great guy. So Gerson, um, just maybe introduce yourself and we'll go from there, man. Yeah, thanks very much, Pat. First, um, you know, thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate your uh, the opportunity, but also, um, I, I would say, even more importantly, the the work that you're doing uh, down in, in Guatemala to to try to um, uh, kind of uh, elevate the story and 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 the importance of Bitcoin for uh, yet another community in, in um, Banahachel. So I'm, I'm I'm very grateful for your work down there, and I'm I'm happy to be uh, helpful in any way that I can. Um, so yeah, a, a little bit about me, uh, my name is is Harrison Martinez. Um, I go by by Harrison uh, in in English. Uh, oftentimes, people call me Harrison, Gerson, all kinds of stuff. But uh, um, I am, uh, as you mentioned, I've, I was born and raised in Maryland. Um, but I guess the thing that uh, uh, I, I tend to refer to always is uh, that my parents are from El Salvador, right? My parents are, are uh, immigrants from El Salvador who emigrated to the States um, close to 40 years ago. And um, what brought them to the States was actually um, very emblematic, very, very uh, uh, typical of, uh, of a Central American um, immigrant in, in the 80s. And it was that there was a civil war raging in El Salvador at the time. So um, there wasn't a lot of safety or security in El Salvador. So a lot of folks um, left, you know, and, and, and sought a better life, a safer life in, in the U.S. So um, I was, you know, my parents emigrated. Um, they had me in, in Maryland where I was born and raised. Um, then, uh, I had this kind of interesting kind of unique experience in rural America because I grew up in a rural part of Maryland, which was a, which was an interesting, uh, you know, experience being the son of an immigrant family, uh, in, or being an immigrant family in rural America in the, mm. in the nineties was, was weird to say the least. But, um, uh, but then, uh, you know, I kind of grew up, I went to college. I was, I got the opportunity to go to, to, to college and, um, I entered the, the, um, capital market space. Uh, after that, I went to work for Morgan Stanley in New York city. I was a derivatives trader for about five years there. And, um, then uh, kind of made my way out of the industry in 2013. I, I decided to kind of um, uh, seek a, a little bit of a different uh, uh, path in, in, my, in my life. Um, but I'll say that, that around that time is when I became I, I became aware of Bitcoin, you know, kind of mm-hmm. for the first time. I would say in 2014, 2015 is probably the first time that I, I, I heard about Bitcoin. Um, but of course, not to say that I had any real knowledge at the time, um, uh, uh, of the technology. So, um, so yeah, that's a, l- a little bit about how, how, or I guess my, my, my background and, um, and my, my professional background at, at, at that as well, I, I guess, um, what, what, what that, 
just what that means is is that in terms of my professional background, I, I came to Bitcoin not from the technical side. I'm not a developer. You know, I'm not. A, I don't know how to write a single line of code. Um, but I could understand Bitcoin's importance first, perhaps as an asset class, as, as this kind of exotic, you know, asset class as a, a, a you know a portion of a portfolio that someone might want to hold, and then that kind of initial understanding sent me down the rabbit hole and, you know, helped me to understand, um, the importance of self-sovereignty or, you know, seeking self-sovereignty and, um, and, and being able to kind of opt out of all of the, 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 you know, the systems that we are kind of forced to be a part of uh, today. That's awesome. Uh, person, uh, because I, <laughs> because I am a gringo. It's, a, um, I have mispronounced your name and I apologize that for, for that, my okay. friend. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, uh, Tell me a little bit, because, you know, I remember when we first connected and we were talking about El Salvador, you had this really, um, really genuine, because it was genuine, emotional response to what was going on in El Salvador and the pride that it, it kind of um, ignited in you about your about, about your country. I thought that was really special. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to kind of, um, it's, it's a bit dense, so I'll try to, uh, you know, I'll try to kind of uh, uh, keep it succinct. But um, like I mentioned, you know, a little bit ago, growing up in America as the son of immigrants, and not just immigrants in general, but Salvadoran immigrants, um, maybe to describe a little bit to the audience what 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 specifically that meant to me, um, as a kid, um, being a uh, uh, Latin American, first of all, in, in a community where there were no Latin Americans was already, I was already kind of othered, right? I was already like, it, it was weird for me to stand up for my language, my culture, my values, my food, you know, it was, it was strange because you're different from everybody else. Right. Um, so, but that's, that's in the context of just being Latin American, but more specifically being Salvadoran. Um, and I don't think any Salvadoran would, 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 um, perhaps argue with this, uh, in the eighties and nineties, being Salvadoran was very much like, oh, wow, you're from that. Ugh, like you're from there, right? The, the war-torn, poor, increasingly violent country, right? There wasn't, I personally, I can't speak for everyone, right? But, but I personally didn't feel pride. In a, mm. I, didn't, I didn't feel a sense of pride in being associated with and being from, you know, El Salvador. And I, even, you know, it's, and it's shameful to say, but even within my own family, within our own Salvadoran group in America, you know, there was this sense of like, don't talk like a Salvadoran. Like, don't, mm. you know, get rid of that accent. Get rid, you know, it, it's almost like you want to detach yourself or disassociate from your culture because of all of these kind of negative associations with what it means to be Salvadoran, right? And that's kind of the existence that I had my entire childhood, right? I had no other, I had, I had no way of um, uh, understanding my cultural heritage and being proud of it, right? Uh, especially as a kid. That that started to change in college, and the reason was because I started to learn about El Salvador's history, mm. right? I started to learn, and then personally, like our personal story, our, our personal history as a family. Um, one side of my family, on my dad's side, um, they were co coffee cultivators, right? Going back five, six generations, and what I didn't know as a kid was that. That, um, in the early 1900s, my family actually owned the land that they used to cultivate. Mm. But um, around that time, in the early 1900s, um, a subsidiary of a United Fruit Company um, came around because of an agreement with the Salvadoran federal government at the time, came around and basically bought all the land that um, small coffee farmers like my you know ancestors uh, had. You didn't really have a choice in the matter. They said, here's 
the purchasing price that you have to take. And guess what? Now you're going to work the land, mm. but it's ours, right? So it, it's then it starts to reveal to someone like me as I start to understand this that there's no surprise then that my dad in 1957 was born into abject poverty, mm. right? Because their property rights had been taken from them, right? They had been given kind of indentured servitude status and, and, and forced into a cycle of poverty. And so in 1957, my dad is born into abject poverty in the 1980s. My teenage dad or 20 something's dad, um, uh, is, it finds himself in the middle of a civil war. So he has to leave, right? These are all externalities. These are not like bad choices that people make that, you know, force them to go to America, right? These are just big giant things that oftentimes we're not aware of, right. That drive people to emigrate. Um, so as I started to understand all that, I started to real come to grips with like my cultural heritage and start to feel a little bit of pride in who we are. Right. And then fast forward to 2020 and I'm in Miami for the conference, the Bitcoin conference. And, you know, in front of like my whole world, which is the Bitcoin world, you know, El Salvador of all of the countries in the world, El Salvador is the one that announces this gigantic step forward in um, adopting a Bitcoin standard, or at least, uh, you know, the parallel next to, you know, the US dollar standard uh, that exists on there. It was to your, to your question or to your point about pride, it brought, um, like literally, you know, I'm sitting there bawling with my wife because, um, because of how significant that mm. was, you know, um, now in 2020, I was fully, you know, um, committed to the Bitcoin space. So I, I can't tell you how much that meant to me, right. Um, to know that our country, you know, um, is, is the one kind of leading this charge. It's a huge, um, step forward. Right. And a lot, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, which we can, you know, certainly discuss mm -hmm. if you'd like, but as a person with roots in that country, it brings me nothing but joy to know that, that we're, um, kind of breaking new ground, you know, mm -hmm. for on, on a nation state level. And I think interestingly, and I'll kind of end this piece with, with this, um, now, when I talk to people, my age, right. Millennials that are born of immigrants from El Salvador, there's a completely different conversation happening where we're thinking about how do we reestablish roots, real roots, you know, mm -hmm. or reconnect our roots with our, with our, you know, country, you know, how do I figure out how to, you know, own, own assets down there and perhaps spend some of my time down there and maybe someday live down there full time. Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you're, if you're in the Bitcoin space and you see what's, what's, you know, you, you, you project what's going to, you know, kind of happen in the future, this may be, uh, may, may very well be an optimal place for a Bitcoiner to live. Right. So, um, the, the conversation within the Salvadoran kind of like millennial group, I think is, is, is rapidly evolving and it's really, really exciting. To That's really cool. I mean, when I was down there, have, has, talking with local Salvadorans to the best I, the ability I could, uh, there was definitely a genuine pride about what was going on in El Salvador. And I, I think that's, that's really great. What, and I don't want to get too political, but I mean, what do you think about Bukele's uh, recent, I don't know, direction. I think that he, it seems like he's taken some positive steps with mm -hmm. this, the freedom bill that he introduced, or, you know, he wants to introduce 52 new freedoms or something like that. And, mm -hmm. but then, you know, when it comes to the war in Ukraine, he was just dismissive or not willing to condemn Russia. It just, it just seems kind of weird. I don't, I don't know what yeah. your thoughts are on all that. 
Yeah. Um, and li- listen, I, 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 I can only speak as a, like I said, as a, as an American, an American born, you know, a uh, person who's, 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 um, kind of observing from a distance. I, I want to caveat. I want to be very clear. Like I don't live in El Salvador full time. Um, I don't live the realities of being in El Salvador. So my, my observations, I guess, are from that of the, di- what we call the diaspora, right? Those of mm-hmm. us who live out, outside of the state. So having said that, um, I guess my, my, my overall kind of thought uh, or, uh, um, or um, I guess, analysis of, of Bukele and his rise to power um, is that it's very logical to me. It's very rational what's happened politically in El Salvador. So that civil war that I was talking about back in the 80s, um, that ended after 12 years. It was 11 or 12 years of civil war. The war finally ended in an agreement where the guerrilla, the, the, the guerrilla uh, kind of fighters that were, you know, fighting against the, the government, the federal government, were given a political part. Like they were kind of established as a political party mm-hmm. from from at the at, at you know at the end of the war going forward. Um, and so from the end of that war all the way through to twenty. 18, you know, you had a two party system in El Salvador and, and an increasingly polarized, you know, hyper left and hyper right, um, uh, political system and administration after administration, after administration, the same thing kind of kept happening. The insiders of the two political parties continually, you know, controlled and enriched, you know, themselves where, and, 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 and the rest of the population continually suffered, right? Got poorer and poorer and poorer um, through all the different changes like dollarization. In 2001, El Salvador became dollar, U.S. dollarized. Um, and that had a gigantic effect in impoverishing and making po- people more poor, but making the banking sector much more wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but I guess I'm describing the reality, the political realities of El Salvador for the last 40 years. So then fast forward to 20, you know, the mid 2010s and um, Nayib Bukele bursts onto the scene first as the mayor of San Salvador. And he's got these very new and different um, and innovative ideas, right? Um, I think it's natural, it's logical for a people who have been just ravished by two different parties and, 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 and pitted against each other to welcome a different voice, right? Welcome a new uh, idea per se. And so Bukele wins the, you know, the, the, the San Salvador mayoral election. And then he sets his eyes on the presidency and he does so by establishing his own political party, the new ideas political party. And that party um, by and large is millennial college educated Salvadorans, right? A brand new generation of politician, which I think as a, as a millennial, that's very refreshing to me. I look at America, right? And we look at our 70 plus year old, you know, top five most powerful people in our country. And I see the same problem, right? I wish that we had younger blood in our federal you know, halls. Um, and yet El Salvador did that in like two years, right? They went from electing a president to you know, a supermajority in the legislative chamber in a matter of two years. And so I think to me, that indicates the appetite that there is for new ideas and innovation and thinking differently. Right now, that's the, the broader thing. Now, now to your, to your question about Bukele's tactics, right? Once he was democratically elected in a free and fair election, and so was his, you know, 
his uh, the legislative body, but then the tactics with which they are moving, I understand, are very you know uncomfortable, in particular to Western you know democracies, right? Um, and and look, I, I do not discount the possibility that a political party or a political figure with absolute power can potentially become corrupted. Of course, we know that, right? I, I do not discount, you know, that, that possibility and I'm not some, you know, Bukele worshiper. However, I would say that given the history of the country, given, given what they've just gone through over the last 40 years, um, he provides a, a lot of hope, uh, you know, to, to the people who are there and the people who had to leave, right. Who are now considering, potentially reestablishing roots. So, so I think, um, and I, I don't know if that kind of fully answers your question and, and I can't get inside of his head and, 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 you know, kind of question why he's not as condemning of Russia and, and it's, uh, and, 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 and that, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, I think that's what Bukele to my family and I, and I, and I know I can speak for my parents who are in their sixties and seventies, you know, who are very supportive of, of Bukele, um, because I think because of the hope that he's kind of bringing to this, this entire nation. I guess the only reason that I, I bring it up, because I know the business that you're in that we'll be talking about here shortly, but, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about um, his tactics, does that make doing business in El Salvador, um, difficult. you know, difficult and, you know, business owners like stability and they like to know what the roadmap is. And, yep. you know, what Bukele, Bukele is doing is unorthodox and yep. business people don't like unorthodox yeah. tactics because, well, if he can do it to political opponents, he can come in and disrupt my business or yeah. appropriate my business or whatever, like Maduro did or, or Chavez did in Venezuela. So anyway, yep. yeah, so, I mean, what, no, no, uh, that's, that's a, that's a great point. And, and I think that actually the events of the world in, that are happening in the world right now shine a very interesting light on that question, right? Because what you're talking about is distrust, right? Of unfamiliarity and distrust of a head of state or a government, right? That we're not we as Americans, let's say, aren't familiar with. But at the same time, like considering what's happening right now, right? Can truckers in Canada, you know, Russian, you know, foreign assets being frozen, you know, the, that, 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 that stability, I think that we are accustomed to and that predictability in America, in American, uh, uh, the federal government's kind of way of, of conducting itself is, is shaking, you know, it's kind of like, hmm, you know, it's like, wait a minute, that can happen that, you know, we, we can clearly be separated from our, 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 our money, whether you're Canadian, you know, uh, now, or, um, you know, if you're, uh, uh, an adversary of, 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 uh, North America. Right. So that, sorry, that that's, that's one thing with respect to Bukele, I, again, I can only speak for myself, but I think the absolute strongest and pretty much only signal that I needed as a Bitcoiner was that Bukele decided to opt into the Bitcoin network, right? Okay. Uh, uh, which tells me that he understands the importance of decentralization, you know, in a monetary system. Um, like this, this guy's a Bitcoiner, right? He didn't say, and, and remember, El Salvador used to have its own currency called the Colón all the mm -hmm. way up until mm -hmm. 2001. And they were kind of forcibly, you know, dollarized overnight, you know? Um, they used to have their own money. And you could have had a, a president, you know, a strong handed, you know, but democratically elected president that says, you know what, we're going to create our own currency again. We're going to create this Colón, the CBDC Colón, right? And we're going to control it and blah, blah, blah. 
that would have been a huge red flag, right? For, for any, any of us. However, this government decided to opt into a monetary system they cannot control, right? So as a Bitcoiner, um, of course, holding everything else constant, that gives me a lot of confidence about doing business in El Salvador as a Bitcoiner, because the Bitcoin standard is what they're opting into. And once, and as we know, once laws are enacted, repealing them and undoing, unwinding what's, what's already happening is going to be very difficult, number one. And number two, I think El Salvador actually has a very deep bench of leaders who are preparing to be the next, um, you know, heads of state, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's probably a lot of fear that like Bukin is going to become a dictator and like be president forever. I don't actually think that's a, that's a highly likely. I think there's a, an entire political party that is, um, highly capable, highly motivated and, um, and is going to, you know, kind of continue on with this vision that he's starting. But um, I, I personally don't see too much risk in him becoming some lifelong, you know, kind of dictator in El Salvador, but rather a, a, a kind of spearhead for a vision that's anchored in Bitcoin. Right. Um, yeah. I, I find it interesting that I guess the term of the presidency in El Salvador is five years and you can only serve one term. I find, you know, that that can make, um, casting a vision and implementing it kind of difficult. So mm-hmm. honestly, I, I'm not sure I would be too shocked or disturbed if Bukele somehow uh, is able to serve two terms. I think that would mm-hmm. probably be best yeah. uh, for El Salvador at this time. And, and also, and I would add, Patrick, that like, I, I think that notion, you know, of like constitutional, you know, changing the constitution that scares folks, right. That scares a lot of us to think, but I would offer that like, Go back to, you know, John Adams, right? Um, uh, in our own history, there was a time where there was only one term. We had to change our constitution mm-hmm. for there to be two terms. And then, you know, the next thing someone will say, well, but nepotism, one of his brothers is going to become president. Well, John Quincy Adams mm-hmm. happens to be John Adams' son. I'm not excusing it. I'm just yeah. saying it's part of our own history. We just, because we weren't around for it, we're not critical of it. Right. And now it's part of like our folklore and we're so proud of it. And I believe that a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, Salvadorans will also look back on this pivotal point in time. Um, I understand the, the, this caution and skepticism from folks who began to pay attention to El Salvador three weeks ago or six months ago. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think, um, like I said, for families like ours, it, it provides us with a lot of hope. That's great. That's great. Um, all right. So let's, let's kind of transition from that. That I, I, I think that just kind of gives the listeners kind of a historical context and probably context for you as a person. And, and so I think that's helpful. So Herson, yeah. uh, kind of, I mean, how did you get into Bitcoin? How did you segue into Bitcoin mining and kind of describe that whole journey? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so I, I became a, a, let's call it a saver in Bitcoin and a person who, who began to understand and get educated on Bitcoin. Um, probably in the 2017, 2018 kind of, uh, uh, timeframe, I began kind of my educational, my, my deep, dense educational journey then. Um, and basically to, to make a long story short, um, what happened was that once I had made my kind of maximum possible allocation of my long-term savings into Bitcoin, there was no more, you know, there's nothing more to allocate. I had already put all my savings into Bitcoin. The question for me became, how, what's my Bitcoin accumulation strategy from here until the rest of my life? Number one, I either work a job and DCA for the rest of my life. But if I believe what I believe about the price of Bitcoin and my salary is not going to, you know, 
a hundred times, a hundred percent Kager every year for, you know, uh, uh, for the next 10 years, either I dollar cost average, um, for the rest of my career, or I find the other way that I can acquire Bitcoin, which is, um, either to work directly for it or to mine it. Right. I started to educate myself on the mining industry. And again, this was call it 2019 going into 2020. But at this time in 2019 and 2020, the mining industry was categorically unavailable to me because you had to have gigantic resources to be able to invest in the capital expense, you know, capex necessary to mine computers, um, infrastructure, um, you know, power source, all this stuff. You had to have a pretty, pretty, a bi- pretty big war chest to, to start up a, a, a profitable mining operation. Right. Um, and, and I knew nothing about, or, or no one I had no context in the industry. What changed everything for me was in late, uh, you know, third quarter of 2020, a company called compass mining, uh, which a lot of your, your, you know, listeners might be familiar with the kind of pleb miners, let's say mm-hmm. the, the mining for plebs is, is their kind of motto. Um, they came onto the scene and because of Twitter, um, you know, because of some of the folks that I, that I interacted with, I became aware of them pretty early and I decided to just take a chance, right. To buy one ASIC and see if eventually, you know, if I followed the steps, if Bitcoin would land in this wallet address that I gave them just to test it out. And, um, lo and behold, it did. And I, you know, started doing deeper and deeper analysis and, and, and annual, you know, running some models to annualize my expected return. And I said to myself, okay, I think this might be a way to, to, uh, uh, to, to invest my savings like, and, and compound capital over time, but compound it in Bitcoin, right? Cause once you're on a Bitcoin standard, you don't really think in fiat terms, you're thinking, how do I end this year with more Bitcoin than I started it? with. Right. And so mining became just conceptually the clear way for me to do that. And it was a hobby, you know, for a little bit, like, okay, I'm going to keep experimenting, keep experimenting, you know, keep experimenting and investing. And then eventually it became clear that I could, um, just dedicate my full-time, full-time attention, you know, to this kind of small business. Um, and, and, uh, and that's kind of where, where I am today, you know, it's been, uh, probably 18 months or so. Um, but I now, because I care about Bitcoin, I care about El Salvador's success with Bitcoin and, 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 and mining is clearly now a a, a method through which I can, you know, just accumulate Bitcoin over time. I've decided to kind of take that leap. I I left my job at the end of last year and I'm dedicating myself, you know, full time to learning and engaging and in in the space and, um, kind of, uh, scaling up my, my, uh, mining business, um, you know, going forward. And Herson, is that, is that all, are you doing that all through, uh, compass at this time? Um, so I had, uh, I, I would say for the first nine months or so, all of my purchases were, um, hosted mining, you know, arrangements with compass. Um, at this point I've diversified away from, you know, just the one hosting partner. Um, and, and because of this, the scale of things and the life cycle of my machines and all, all you know, all this kind of, uh, uh, stuff that I need to consider, I'm going to start, you know, kind of self mining in other parts of the world that aren't just North America and, uh, or, you know, the U S and Canada, which is where all of compass mining's or um, my assets with compass mining, uh, were so, so, th- and, but this is kind of part of my journey, right. Um, going from being a hosted miner with, uh, uh, just that kind of plug and play 
let somebody else do the hosting, you know, mentality to transitioning to being like a full stack miner, um, eventually. Right. And there's a steep learning curve, you know, for someone like me, but this is what I enjoy. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. The, um, well, I guess you've kind of pulled a couple of strings. I want to go down. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, speaking of the life cycle of miners, you know, I, I got a, S nine miner and I'm mining here in my home. Not, not because I think I'm going to make a lot of money because it's inefficient, but just to learn, you know, the process and how really it's pretty simple. Um, but you know, as I think about the life cycle of these machines and what we're trying to do down in us in Guatemala, it, the thinking of recycling, um, these, this equipment to an area that they don't need the highest efficiency or the newest equipment. I mean, what are your thoughts about all that? Do you think that's a good, do you think, do you think that's a good play? Do you think that's a good opportunity for developing country and, and markets like that? No, absolutely. I think, um, uh, naturally what, what has been happening and what will continue to happen is that as the, uh, you know, the full-time miners, the publicly traded miners, the folks who do this at a commercial industrial level will always be, um, you know, pursuing the best and most efficient hardware, right? Because that's, that's, what's going to, you know, produce the highest yield, um, uh, for them. Um, and so the market will always be, and there's tons of, you know, new machines coming out every, every couple of weeks, it seems right. Um, there will always be an appetite for the, you know, most efficient, most powerful machines out there. And those who can afford, you know, that, that level of, of, uh, of, um, you know, CapEx commitment will do so as machines S nines, and then eventually S 19s and S 19 pros, um, become less and less efficient compared to the newer equipment. Um, I think there's going to be tons of opportunity to redirect those machines to places in the world where electricity is either free or effectively free, right? Because the less, the, the less efficient a machine, the cheaper you need the electricity to be for their, for, for it to be worth, <laughs> you worth it to run, run, run an ASIC, right? So, so places like Panahachel or places all over the world, right. That are, are natural resource rich, right. They have a either hydroelectric, you know, potential energy or, or, um, geothermal energy if you're in El Salvador, that kind of thing. There will always be a place for re, re, redirection of aging ASICs. And then also, and I, and I don't pretend, portend or pretend to know uh, 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 everything about this, but the, um, uh, and, and, and someone like um, Crypto Mags on, on Twitter comes to mind as, as, as really an expert in this area. Um, as you as you use some of those older machines, you, know, you put them to use. You can you, you can kind of reuse. For example, you can use the heat. You know the, the mm-hmm. offtake uh, heat offtake from a- Asics to heat homes, yep. right? Um, or or heat entire cities, which I believe uh, 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 Vancouver in Canada is is exploring, right? So there's so many ancillary, you know, and tertiary uses of the out, you know, the inputs and outputs and particularly the outputs of, of mining, um, that I think are really exciting. And we're just barely beginning to kind of scratch the surface of those possibilities. But I imagine a world 10 years from now that 
where we have ASICs scattered throughout the world, a lot of people, for example, are heating their homes, you know, with uh, ASICs rather than paying, you know, for, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, natural gas, you know, to, to, to heat their homes, that kind of thing. Um, I think there's so many possibilities and th- th- an, a- an aging ASIC is definitely not, you know, some of it, Nick Carter, you know, very uh, correctly critiques someone who was like, well, clearly miners are worthless after 18 months, you know? Mm. So, uh, we know that not to be true, yeah, right. Yeah. There's tons of utility. And in particular in, in communities, like I said, in Panajachela and, and, and other places where, um, they, they can benefit from, you know, not only the mined Bitcoin, but the, the, uh, other uses of, of mining outputs. Um, there's definitely always going to be a place. Yeah, that's great. In fact, the, the miner I have, I've, uh, connected to my ductwork here in the basement. Um, and it's, it's done a pretty good job of keeping me warm through the winters, uh, down here in the basement. So that that's good. Well, let's, um, I guess let's talk about, you know, Intel's new machine coming out. I think that's coming out first quarter of next year. Believe and, so, yeah. and, um, it looks, I mean, I just saw a blurb on it. It looks like it's going to be 15% more efficient than the current ASIC and it's going to be cheaper. And I, I imagine that's going to have, um, the companies and I can't remember the name is a company in China, the two, um, uh, Bitmain and, and micro BT. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they've got to be quaking in their boots. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, when I first saw and, uh, the, the kind of announcement, uh, that, that Intel was developing, you know, the, the, this machine before the kind of statistics came out on it, um, I, I think it signaled, um, similar to the semiconductor industry, right? Where we know that TSMC is so high, uh, is so, um, uh, I don't want to say vulnerable, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, a, a semiconductor company that's perhaps in the domain of another superpower in the world. We want to bring those resources onto, our, you know, our soil, uh, American soil. So to me, the notion that Intel was getting into the mining business, similar to Blockstream, you know, um, is, is a good thing, right? Uh, decentralizing the manufacturing of ASICs is, is, is unequivocally to me a good thing. The fact that it's in the U.S., of course, is an even better thing for Americans, but just in general, you know, the fact that we are, we, we will have hopefully a major player to add to the two, you know, micro BT and, uh, and Bitmain, uh, that, that competition, as we know, just from general, you know, just like basic economics competition will make prices better for those of us who are seeking to buy, um, ASICs. And then I think also you probably read the same blurb, uh, that I did from, from compass, um, where it's also understood that, uh, you know, supply chain issues that are related to buying Bitmain machines and micro BT machines will be far reduced when your parts and your labor and your, you know, shipping is all, uh, um, happening within the, the continental U S if you're an American miner, it makes buying an Intel, you know, machine that much less of a headache than, you know, going on a telegram channel and trying to find, you know, uh, uh a six from micro BT or, or, uh, or Bitmain. So I think it's unequivocally a good thing. Um, and and it and it it's 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 what we want to see in this ecosystem, right? More decentralization rather than more concentration, uh, which is what we've had for a while between 
uh, you know, the market share of Bitmain and micro BT in, in this, uh, in this industry. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens, uh, with the, the price of machines out of China, uh, when, when Intel officially launches and so I'm sure they're already taking orders. So that, that's yeah. just going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 12 to 18 months. What, Definitely. um, what the, I guess I'm also curious about, you know, I don't follow hash rate or anything like that. I mean, are you, have you seen any effect on hash rate coming out of China, um, Russia with this recent um, war? And if not, do you think that long-term there's going to be an issue with hash rate coming out of Russia? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, and I'm sorry, I'm just, as we're talking here, I'm pulling up the, um, the hash rate index from Luxor. I think that's a really, really great, uh, resource for anyone to, um, to, to rely on, um, to just to kind of look at the net, network data right now. I think what we've seen, um, in terms of, in terms of hash price, um, going back to like November of last year, right? October, November of last year, um, we were, uh, you know, miners were, were enjoying, uh, you know, 40 cent per terahash, you know, um, per day, uh, hash price. And that hash price has now been cut more than 50%, right? Today, I think we're at something like 18 or 19, um, uh, so cents. Person, put that kind of yeah. explain that to someone who's not a miner. What what are you what are you describing? Sure, sure. The, so the hash price, the Bitcoin hash price, is is kind of is is a revenue figure. So it's it's how many dollars um, you make per terahash of computational power per day. So an example, the Bitmain uh, the the Bitmain um, S19 Pro. Um, they have a, a, a 100 terahash machine, right? That means that machine produces 100 terahashes per second of computational power. That's 100. Call it horsepower. It's kind of like uh, mm -hmm, the sure. analog in the automotive world is, is a horsepower. So you have a 100 horsepower machine. The 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 hash price is is a is a is a, a dollar figure ascribed to every terahash. So one S19 has 100 terahash, which means it makes 18 cents times 100 per day, right? So it makes, uh, uh, what's that, a dollar 80, right, per, per, per day. A dollar 80? Um, 18 cents times 100. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, it's, so, so, so hash price is a, a metric that's been developed by you know, Luxor, uh, mining and, um, uh, to, to help miners understand what's my revenue per unit of computational power that I'm contributing to the network. And that helps us to make better business decisions, right? These metrics are, I mean, this is such a, um, a new industry, right. That's being commercialized and, and standards are being developed. So these metrics are really, really important, um, you know, for so us to, to be able to observe. So the practical application would be if it's 40 cents per tera hash um, six months ago, uh, it's probably a good time to consider capital allocation for more tera hash. But if it's lower, you're probably going to hold that capital until the, the rate per tera hash goes up. Is that a fair assessment? That's that's right, yeah, and and I would say that the um, uh, that hash price is affected. Another kind of in, uh, important thing to consider or to understand is that that hash price is affected by two things: the price of Bitcoin, the market price of Bitcoin, right? Um, as the price of Bitcoin uh, holding everything else constant, as the price of Bitcoin goes down, 
terahash, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a hash price goes down as well, right? Um, but at the same time, the other factor that affects hash price is network hash rate, right? So your question uh, a little bit ago was about uh, Russia, right? And Russia's effect and war, the, the effect of war on hash rate. And I, I can't say that I have a clear understanding right now. I don't see it in the network hash rate kind of chart, you know? Um, uh, we're at all-time highs in in network hash rate right now. We're at 200 exahash per second, right? Um, currently, uh, probably a little bit over 200, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 201, I believe. That is all-time high network hash rate, and so I, I believe that's a result of the last 12 months of publicly traded miners putting in orders for 80,000 machines, 50,000 machines. Remember, there's been supply chain issues that have delayed the delivery of these machines by 12 months. So those orders were placed nine to 12 months ago, and they're just coming online now. So that backlog is, as it clears up, our network hash rate is going to continue to expand, right? There's estimates out there that will end 2022 near 300 exahash, right? Which wow. means difficulty is going up. And if you hold the price of Bitcoin constant, if network hash rate go, uh, goes up and the price of Bitcoin is held constant, profitability of miners goes down. That hash price goes down. And further, if you have like the worst of scenarios where hash prices go, I'm sorry, network hash rate is going up and the price of Bitcoin is going down, then you see hash price precipitously dropping, right? And and this is the beauty of the Bitcoin network. That dynamic washes out the least profitable Bitcoin miners. If you're paying 15 cents per kilowatt hour in electricity, you're not profitable right now, or you're barely profitable, right? Um, so if you have a, a further drop in hash price, those folks that are paying the most for electricity are going to have to shut off their machines because it's unprofitable. And then we get this rebound, right? When um, the conditions and the you know, network hash rate and um, and uh, uh, perhaps we get another bull market, um, those when those conditions correct course, then more miners come back into the system, right? Because hash price spikes. So there's 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 actually it sounds like well first of all it's a it's a self-correcting feedback loop, but it sounds like there's a FOMO that goes on within Bitcoin mining, just like there does with the purchase of Bitcoin, as the price goes up or the 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 hash per the the price per hash goes up, more yep. and more miners jump in, and those who got in at the bottom are making profit, and those that get in at the top are ha are the ones that have to get out first when the price exactly. Drops. Yeah. And, and I would even say that one, one of my observations in the last kind of year of, of getting, you know, more and more educated and familiar with the space is that during that kind of FOMO phase, I mean, you think about any bull market, think about the housing market, right? What happens in a housing bubble, um, in an, in an, um, in an easy credit environment, which we all know we have been in, right? Suddenly, not only does it, not only are you FOMOing, but you have access to credit and a lot of folks, um, during this kind of FOMO period that began last summer, you know, everyone started getting, becoming aware, like the pleb, you know, the pleb plebs out there became aware of this stuff. Um, folks started to take on leverage, you know, or, or, or borrow money to buy ASICs near the top of, the, you know, their, their cycle. So on the way down, those are the folks that are in the most trouble and have to like, you know, maybe turn down their operations or pause them because they're unprofitable. Um, one, one thing I would, uh, uh, would, would offer is that, um, 
every you know folks that are considering mining should should understand that uh, the the price of ASICs, the average price of of you know the the, the machines, um, follows the price of Bitcoin. So when you see a precipitous drop in the price of Bitcoin, you can expect the price of of ASIC machines to to, to drop as well. And just like any other you know asset that you're going to consider buying, you want to buy it, you know, as the price is, you know, declining rather than as it's nearing its, you know, bubble, bubble top. So uh, with that, what I mean is, um, I would expect that the price of, of ASICs, um, is, is probably going to continue to deflate and correct a little bit, um, as we head into the, 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 the remainder of this year because of the d- decline in, in the price of Bitcoin that we've seen since last November. I heard um, Adam Beck one time describe uh, mining and and the dynamic, and he said that um, the smart people that get into mining, if they've got a certain amount of capex that they want to devote to mining, the smart ones don't allocate all of it up front. They they allocate some. They wait to see what happens and uh, reallocate because you know you've got the price of electricity or and whatnot, and we're probably going to see an increase in energy cost. Um, obviously, not just gasoline, but um, all energy. That that's, that's really. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Herson, what uh, I, I guess another question I have for you is this has been a great conversation. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, what what do you think? Um, well, I guess two things. One. Do you think there are going to be people similar to, to hodlers when they purchase Bitcoin? Do you think there will be hodlers when it comes to mining? Like, for instance, my S9. I mean, do I really care what the price of electricity is or the miner is? I don't know. I mean, if it's providing heat for my basement, I'll just let it run and and just wait for the price of Bitcoin to go up. And, you know, I'm not a business, so I I don't mind eating a little bit of electricity cost. Do you think Mm -hmm. that there's going to be more and more mining hodlers as the network grows, is that is that a weird question? I, um, no, no. I, th- I think I, I, I think I understand. I I, I believe so. Yes, <laughs> um, because um, uh, the the more we, we know this, right? The more miners there are um, uh, contributing computational power to the network, the more secure the network is. And we all, those of us who are, um, you know, uh, I think proponents and participants in the network want it to be secure, right? So intrinsically, I'm a, let's call it a mining hodler. What that means to me is I will continually find the way to allocate my ASICs and, and, and deploy my ASICs to the cheapest and most consistent, you know, uh, uh, um, source of power, um, that'll require some, some work, right? Because there will come a moment where even paying, you know, five or six cents per kilowatt hour in America might be unprofitable. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so then what that means is either if I'm not a hodler, right. If I'm just like, okay, forget it. I would, you know, sell off my ASICs and, and, and that's that. Or I would say, okay, let me scour the earth for cheap, reliable, um, electricity, hopefully, you know, free electricity. And maybe that drives me one day to making an investment in a, a power, you know, investing in, in power generation, right. Clean, renewable power generation. Um, we'll, we'll uh, get, or, we'll get, we'll get you there in, in Guatemala. 
<laughs> yeah, right, right. Or, or even El Salvador. Like, yeah, I, for I sure. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of appetite from the government of El Salvador to get, you know, the mining industry to invest in energy infrastructure, right? That, that first of all, energizes communities, right? We want electricity to go to homes and businesses first, but then the excess capacity that's built can go directly into, into mining. And if you can do that on abundant natural resources, you know, that uh, don't uh, pollute our, our earth, um, then so be it. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is an interesting business that kind of drives that behavior. Yeah. I, I think it's incredible. The more and more I learn about mining and sustainable energy sources, it's, it's really a non-intuitive, uh, fascinating intersection for sure. Um, Herson, what have you seen any of these, um, uh, combined Bitcoin mining node, uh, machines that are, that are starting to hit the market? No, I don't think I have. Um, yeah, I, I ran across one. It was, uh, and I don't think it's anything novel. It's just kind of interesting. It was a, it's a Bitcoin miner and I I'll send you the information on it, but it's a Bitcoin okay. miner and node combined oh. into, into one unit for, for home oh, use cool. for people who want to get into Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's a, that's a really good, I think, um, uh, idea. Cause I, I think there's, there's so much, of course, there's so few people, I think, um, that, uh, generally speaking that understand, um, what, what, what running a node is right. And then secondly, what, what mining is and that are willing to actually do it. So I think bundling those two things together, is actually a pretty good idea. And I think that, um, I'm sure you would still have to connect to the slush pool, a slush pool. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think one of the, um, I'm just wondering anyway, I, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not, I'm not sure it's uh, coherent or not, but anyway, it's, it's just kind of interesting. Um, yeah. the concept. Yeah. Totally. Well, yeah. Herson, that this has been great. Uh, do you have anything else you want to share or, um, yeah. Anything you want to share about mining or any final thoughts? Well, I guess I would, I would leave you just with this thought and, and for anyone in the audience who's, who's, um, interested in learning about El Salvador, I, I, uh, given everything that I described earlier, I have a, a really deep and sincere passion for people to understand El Salvador and learn about it and, and, um, kind of demystify it a, a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anyone, you know, is interested in kind of learning a little bit about a little bit more about what's, what's happened in El Salvador and what's happening now in the present, um, I'm more than happy to connect. You know, I, I, uh, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to have those conversations. I could do that all day. And then, you know, kind of to add to that, there's the element of mining as well. I think one of my, uh, one of the things I feel very compelled to do is to connect the mining industry with, El Salvador as a nation in terms of its, you know, kind of political structure and, and things. These are two worlds that have a really great symbiotic relationship with one another, but who don't understand each other. Your earlier question about like, wait a minute, isn't the way that the president is behaving a little bit weird, right? That's a lot. Everyone's question. Everyone has that same question. Miners, industrial miners in America have that same question. And then similarly in the, in El Salvador, we have a whole country that doesn't understand the mining industry and doesn't Mm. understand how much they would benefit from opening up the floodgates to investment in mining in El Salvador. So I kind of want to do whatever I can to kind of help bridge that gap of of understanding between these two worlds. So if anyone out there is involved in either of the two worlds and wants to kind of uh, understand a little bit more or make introductions to folks, I'm more than happy to do that. Herson, so is is Twitter the best way? Because I'll leave that in the in the uh, show notes. Is that is yes. that the best way? Okay. Um. Yep. I'm I'm at Herson uh, Martinez. G E R S O N Martinez. 
Yeah. And I, I can just vouch for Herson's ability to, well, for his passion and his willingness to help because he's helped me on so many occasions. And I, I've really appreciated that. In fact, I think we're talking a little bit later this afternoon about some other matters. So Herson, thanks yet. so much. For, thanks so much for your time. This has been uh, really, really kind of cool. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you very much, Pat.